Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So I think when uh, I mentioned earlier that this is still December, that wasn't much of a shock to you, I would assume. And um, it is December 2019, which in my mind tells me that it, it was 60 years ago, 60 years ago, I was a little bit younger then, and uh, it was at that time I was attending a church uh, in inner city Philadelphia, it was called Fair Hill Presbyterian Church. Had a wonderful pastor, uh, Reverend Murdoch was our pastor. And what I, the only two things I remember about him are when well, we did a roller skating outing and he fell and broke his arm. He never skated before. That was a big story for uh, for a while. The other thing was when he would speak on Sunday mornings and he would talk about how you need to come to know Christ as Savior, and he would cry. In a pulpit, and I always thought that was really weird. Um, I don't think that so much anymore, but uh, but I did think that was kind of weird back then. And in our church, um, there was a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Ed Biedemann, B E I D E M A N. Actually, they weren't a part of our church. They lived outside the city, and they considered themselves missionaries to the inner city and came Sunday after Sunday to our church and taught the Sunday school class that I happened to be in. There was a large group of us kids all about the same age, six, seven, eight-year-olds, and they would come and teach week after week and talk about how you have to have Jesus in your life, you have to ask Him to be your Savior, and how you have a need for a Savior because of your sin. I was young, but I knew enough to know that I did sin. I remember when I was in college, and a couple of you will recognize the name, there was a basketball player on our college team at Grace, his name was Dave Staff, and he was at the Wheaton Church with the basketball team, and gave his testimony, and it went something like this, I was a sinner, smoking, drinking, running with women, but I got gloriously saved at the age of two. <laughs> and. Um, and the people in the Wheaton Church didn't get it. <laughs> but anyhow, it was pretty funny, I thought. Uh, even though I was a lot younger and I don't think I did any of those things, I knew there was enough sin in my life that I, he was right, you know, we needed a savior. So it was early December, 60 years ago. I remember getting on my knees in my bed and praying that I wanted Jesus to come into my life. But here's the, the, the weird quirks that I had back then. I really wanted to accept Christ as my Savior on Christmas Day, but it was early December. And so for a couple weeks, I kept praying every night, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, but not officially until Christmas Day. <laughs> but if anything happens to me between now and then, I want to go to heaven. So you know, I, I had all these great uh, things to do. So uh, so that was pretty much how I came from Mr. Biden and Reverend Murdoch and all that and came to know Christ as Savior. So that was 60 years ago. 
Come back next December, and I'll tell you about the first big test of faith that I had 60 years ago from next December. Now you need to come back, so put it on your calendars. <clears throat> all you need to know is, and some of you know all that story, or some of that story, but um, what you need to know is that I had been a challenge to the guardian angel at that time. So, so you may want to come and hear the rest of that story. Speaking about angels, we've been talking about angels and their involvement in the birth of Christ. Um, and that's been pretty significant. They were really busy at that time. It was pretty, uh, pretty active time. And that's, that's probably true all the time. Angels are busy every single day. Uh, and they're worshiping and praising God and doing His bidding and all that. But this was a unique time when Jesus was being uh, incarnated into human flesh and the angels were quite interested in that. Zechariah is probably the first one that we see having an encounter with uh, an angel at that particular time frame. Uh, he was the priest and he was told that his, he and he elderly him and an elderly wife uh, we're going to have a child, but that had not happened prior to that. And so it's a pretty unique thing. It was the, the young man that was born, is who you and I know as John the Baptizer. And so um, pretty significant. Gabriel was the angel once. Gabriel also appeared to Mary then, months later, six months later, to tell her that she was going to become pregnant from the Holy Spirit of God, because the Holy One born within you is the Messiah, is Christ the Lord, the Savior. And uh, so Gabriel was involved in that. Joseph has, uh, from that time, and then for a, a period, three times when he's sleeping, he has a dream and an angel appears to him. I think there's a possibility of a fourth one but it doesn't say specifically how that happened. So I think there's a fourth one. Anyhow, but it comes to Joseph in a dream. Now I have in the notes for you, dreams, everything you need to know. And I'm gonna tell you everything you wanna know and need to know about dreams, see me later, I can tell you. I know about the REM period and I know why there's a REM period and how long it lasts and how many, how frequently they come and how many you have to have to keep your sanity and all that kind of stuff. That's not important. But poor Joseph, he's having these dreams. I, I thought, you know, at some point, did Joseph like almost feel like, I'm afraid to go to sleep again. What's an angel gonna come and tell me this time when I go to sleep, I don't know. Angel came to him um, when Mary conceived Jesus, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon her and the angel appeared in a dream to tell Joseph that, uh, to give him an explanation. This is what's going on and to direct him to say, it's okay to marry her. She's still pure. She, she hasn't violated anything. Later on, after the birth, at some point, this is what we're looking at today, the angel comes and tells him, you need to get up and get out of there because this is very dangerous. Uh, babies are gonna be killed. It's gonna get really bad. Go to Egypt. Later on, the angel appears in a dream again to Joseph and says, you know what? Everybody who tried to kill Jesus is now gone. They're dead, so it's safe to go back. But then somewhere along the way, somehow it tells us, we'll look at this in a minute, it tells us that 
Joseph was informed by God somehow that uh, maybe you better not settle in Bethlehem because of Archelaus, uh, Herod's son, and so they decided to go up to Nazareth. Angels, really, really involved, really interesting. We looked at this a couple times, but um, even the angels look into these things. Remember, that's First Peter, and Peter was talking about salvation, how a holy, righteous God would welcome sinful, depraved human beings and give them his grace and forgive them. And they didn't have to do a thing, not a single thing. All they had to do was know they needed it and surrender to God and, and repent from their sins. And angels were craning their necks, stretching their necks, looking down at the earth to figure out, what is this? What kind of a God who is this holy? How loving, how graceful is this God? I wrote a sentence in my notes that says this, it would be a huge understatement, understatement to say that the angels were interested and intrigued with God's plan of salvation. That is a huge understatement. They were absolutely fascinated by what God was doing. It made no sense to them at all. A few moments ago, we sang the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, written by everybody in this room's favorite hymn writer from the 19th century, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And uh, there you go, Woo -hoo, thanks Dave. I, I saw that hand. Um, and, and that song was written during the Civil War time. Um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had lost family members, his wife and child, had, I think he had a child that was fighting the war. He was looking at the hatred in the world and everything was a mess. Now, I know you watch the news, so you know nothing's a mess in our world right now. So, um, so that's why we can relate to that. And I'm, I thought it was really a great appropriate song when Joan picked that out and I saw that. I wrote back and said, well, I was thinking of asking you to do that song because it's talking about the evil and the violence and the hatred that's going on. And guess what? Jesus was touched by that a lot. <laughs> And that's where he's just now getting into that in his own life. Satan had a horrible plan for Jesus' life. And it's kind of fascinating to me, I'm not going to develop this thought right now, but Satan was constantly trying to get Jesus killed prematurely because he didn't, I don't think Satan knew the specifics of everything that was going to happen in the future, but he knew something big was up. And he tried to get rid of Jesus as much as he could until it came time when Jesus was going voluntarily to the cross and then Satan tried to stop that from happening. Remember when he said, uh, when Peter said, I'm going to take on the whole Roman Empire. I'm not going to let them touch you, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, and the King James, of course, um, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan, Satan wanted him dead all this time. Now all of a sudden it's time for redemption to be purchased and bought. And Jesus is going to fulfill his mission. And Satan's like, whoa, whoa, I don't know what's going on here, but we've got to stop that. Well, if you remember during the temptation of Christ um, in Matthew chapter 4, that Satan misapplies, he misapplies Psalm 91, 11, 12. 
Is it important to know the scripture? Satan knows the scripture. Demons know the scripture. They know it well. Is it important to know it and also to think rightly about it? I think so. It's not just enough to be able to quote half of a verse somewhere. You need to know what the Word of God says because Satan knows what it says and he can twist it. I remember what he said to Jesus, listen, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have supremacy right now. Just worship me and you don't need to go through all this stuff, especially the cross. Why are you doing that? You don't need it. I'll give it to you. And he says to him, I want you to this test to jump off the temple. You know, God said that he's going to protect you and that he's not going to, that's what this verse says, that his angels are going to protect you and they, uh, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So here you're at the pinnacle of the temple and, and you can jump off and God says that his angels are going to protect you. And I believe that would have happened if Jesus chose to do that. But Jesus chose to just say, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He twisted the scriptures, Satan did, and, and Jesus uh, used the scriptures to defend himself and to say, no, I have a purpose and I'm going to fulfill that. Angels ministered to Christ throughout his life. And that's what we're looking at tonight. And at that time when Satan presented this, when that was over, the angels came and and encouraged him. Okay, let's get back to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, here we are uh, in Bethlehem, which, uh, by the way, John MacArthur suggested, and I think he's right, that there's four Old Testament prophecies fulfilled here uh, in this uh, passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. And the first one uh, would be from my chapter 5, verse 2, where Bethlehem was foretold to be the birthplace of Christ. Remember the Magi? In verse 3 of chapter 2, it tells us that when King Herod heard about this, he was disturbed or troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. King Herod was upset because he was a paranoid leader, and he was a murderer. We'll talk about him a little bit more later. But the people of Jerusalem were upset too, and you would think, well, why? Because, you know, the Magi are talking about the King of Jews, Jesus, the Messiah. But they were probably this King of the Jews, come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. But God warned them and said, don't do that, don't go back there. And they disobeyed Herod and obeyed God. I'm not sure if they even knew why. I don't know if God said, hey, you can't go back there. Herod's going to start killing the babies. You can't, you can't do that. But they did not obey Herod. They obeyed God. And that was a good thing. Herod's motive was simply to kill, not to worship this threat to his kingdom. So we're going to talk about um, some of the things that happened next, starting in verse 13. And um, so far we've seen the one prophecy that was fulfilled, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, fulfilled in the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Sam read for you from third, verses 13 through 15, and in that, Joseph gets warned by an angel, and we don't know who that is. You know, a lot of people assume Gabriel, and that's, that's a good assumption, but we just don't know. But he's warned by an angel in a dream, 
that he needs to leave and go to Egypt. So they left in the middle of the night. And I think they, and I think it was. So I, I started thinking about this. It's like if, if you were at midnight and you and your family are sleeping and someone comes running in and banging on your door and says, your house is on fire, you've got to get out. How many of you would say, okay, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll just, I'll get up early in the morning and get out. <laughs> Not too many. I think when Joseph got awakened by this uh, vision from the angel in his dream and said, you guys got to get to Egypt. I think he stole away in the middle of the night knowing that if King Herod has any understanding of what's going on, they're in great danger. Because you never know how Herod's going to act on impulse. So I think quietly both the Magi and Joseph stole away. The word in uh, verse 13 it says, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. That's an interesting word. The word escape in the Greek is the word fugel. It's the word that we brought into our language, eventually fugel, to mean fugitive. And it means someone, or you're escaping from someone or something. Jesus was a fugitive. Jesus in Egypt was an immigrant. Now Bethlehem to the borders of Egypt was about 75 miles. That's a pretty long trip on foot. And I think that they probably went a little bit farther to either the city of or maybe the region where the city of Alexandria is. And that would add about another 100 miles to it. Egypt, and especially Alexandria, was a natural asylum for Jewish families. Alexander the Great set that up a long time ago, and there was a lot of Jewish people who moved there. In fact, um, the Jewish philosopher historian named Philo said that in the year AD 40, AD 40, just a few decades after Jesus was born, AD 40, Alexandria's city population was at least one million Jews. Now, I don't know how big the city was, but there was at least a million Jews that lived there as well. So it's not unnatural, it's not strange that God would direct Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, to go there. How could they afford this? You know, you get up in the middle of the night, they've already been transplanted. They used to live in Nazareth, and now they're in Bethlehem. We don't know how long they've been in Bethlehem. And now they've got to get up and go to Egypt. How are they going to make a trip like this? How do they afford it? Well, most Bible scholars say it's because of the gifts that the Magi had brought them. The gold, the silver, the frankincense. That would have helped them survive for days, weeks, months, maybe even a year or two if that's what they needed to do. So the command was to go to Egypt and then eventually to return to Israel. And all of that was given to Joseph supernaturally in a dream. So God directed. But the actual trip and the um, experience of staying there and then coming back, we don't have any information that there was any divine intervention. God didn't just drop a pot of gold upon them somehow. 
and they didn't get beamed into the next country. They had to do all that travel and, and setting up on their own. And we know nothing about their stay. It was probably at least months long because we do know that King Herod died in the year 3 AD. So this had to be before that at some point. And depending on where you put Jesus as being born, uh, it could be anywhere from months to three or four years that they were in, in Egypt. <coughs> Notice I've had a verse on the screen from Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Hosea wrote those words, it was true of the nation of Israel. Remember, they went into Egypt and the Exodus and then came out. Uh, that was 700 years before Hosea wrote. <coughs> it's also true of Christ. 700 years after Hosea wrote about it. And I think that would have been one more piece of divine evidence that God used to show that Jesus is and was his son. And this would have been great assurance for Joseph and Mary. And I think they needed it. They had so much going on in their lives that no other parents have ever experienced. And they needed all the constant reassuring that they could get. Now, Matthew, in writing his gospel, and, and is writing primarily to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew shows that Jesus' return to Israel was a picture, much like when Israel was called out of uh, Egypt as well and, and came. But then comes the third picture that uh, was fulfilled from the Old Testament. Verses 16, 17, and 18 read like this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the actual verse from Jeremiah 31, which is actually really, really close to the same as Matthew wrote it out as well. King Herod, bloodthirsty King Herod. This is one of the cruelest acts of his career. For some reason, he didn't like to be tricked. He didn't like to be threatened by another to his kingdom. And his hatred for the child probably began the minute that he spoke to the Magi and they said, where's the one born king of the Jews? He was infuriated and that grew to hatred and then he became very enraged, is what verse 16 tells us. He lost control of his senses and his passion and he probably thought, if I cannot kill this child, I'm going to at least kill all the other children in his place. Now, some scholars have estimated that the number of children that were killed is going to be a low number. They're, they're estimating, based on the population of Bethlehem, uh, and it's just a guess, that it could have been anywhere from 6 to 30 children that were killed. 
And there are some questions as to why does this not appear in things like Josephus. Uh, he's the great Jewish historian. He doesn't talk about it at all. And most conclude that because the number is so small, it wasn't considered a big news item in their day. The soldiers carried out this deed. And they would go to the parents and take the child and kill the child in their presence. And this is why it's relating so well to what was experienced by Israel a long time ago. Jeremiah, when he was writing this, was speaking to the nation of Israel about what was going to happen in Ramah, the area of Ramah. Ramah was a town just five miles north of Jerusalem. And when the Babylonian captivity took place, uh, Babylon took everybody in exile out of Jerusalem and took them up to Ramah, five miles away, to process them and then to send them into uh, Babylon. It was sort of, in a very evil way, a little bit like Ellis Island. <coughs> everybody went through there and then they all went to Babylon. And when that was going on, a lot of the children, a lot of the elderly, a lot of the ones that were not able to take care of themselves were killed. And Rachel, representing all the women of Israel, wept because her children were being put to death. And her weeping represented all the lamentations of the Jewish women back then and now Bethlehem's turn. There's so much sorrow, so much pain, and so much hurt going on at this time. And those in Bethlehem, those innocent babies were the first casualties of the warfare between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God and His Christ. It intensifies as time. For instance, come about AD 70, when the temple is destroyed, um, and Rome gets all upset about that, and over a million Jewish people are massacred because of it. A little bit later, Masada, some of you know the story about that, an entire clan of people were uh, died at that. And all of that just intensifies more and more the spiritual warfare and the physical suffering that comes as a result of it. And it's all gonna climax someday when the Antichrist comes, and there's going to be, uh, when you do the math of what the book of Revelation says, there's going to be more people that die, that are killed, than what ends up remaining on the planet Earth when that's all over. Good news, I don't have it on the screen, you can look at it later, but Jeremiah, in verse 16 of Jeremiah 31, he adds this note of hope. For your work shall be rewarded, and they shall return from the land of their enemy. Now he's telling the Jews, you're about to go into a captivity for 70 years, and it's going to be suffering and, and all kinds of loss, but your faithfulness is going to be rewarded, and you will return to your land again. And I'm sure that those mothers and parents and families in, in Bethlehem, probably were clinging to whatever hope that God could show to them when this evil person rose up to, to attack them. So they go to Egypt. 
And we don't know a whole lot about that, so I can't give you much information. But I can tell you about what happens next, according to Scripture. In verse 19, it says, I will read to the end of the chapter. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Then having been warned in a dream, that's where I think there's a fourth angel. It doesn't say an angel, but I think he somebody appeared and told him. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. Herod dies. And here's how Josephus describes the death of King Herod. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant foul breath, and led to recovery. And I apologize for ruining your lunch today. <laughs> Joseph and Mary started this whole adventure in Nazareth. So that was their hometown, which is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Ultimately, Archelaus falls out of favor with Rome, and, and I can't blame him for that because he was causing trouble. Banished him off to Gaul, and he's out of the picture at some point. So here's, what do we get out of all this? I mean, it's you know interesting historical stuff. I'm thrilled to see the involvement of angels. It's kind of fun to study that and to know. But I think it's important to look at Matthew's focus and what he's trying to tell us. And again, he's writing to a very Jewish audience. He wants them to understand who Jesus is. And I think I have written out in your bulletin, but there's two things that we see. Number one is the divine revelation. You take those Old Testament passages and, and they're being fulfilled right in front of their face, right there in live time for them. And God is surely being a part of this. And the angels are all uh, just add to that uh, substantiation of what God is doing. And then the fulfillment of his divine plan. God is sovereign. And he had provided providential care over his beloved son, Jesus, and the, and the Holy Family. The prophets were fulfilled. And, uh, and it says at the end of that, that he will be called a Nazarene because that's what was said through the prophets. Well, we don't have any specific Old Testament verse that says that Jesus or the Messiah will be a Nazarene. So we believe that that came by verbal tradition. There were prophets that said so. It was passed down probably for generations. Everybody knew that was going to be the case. We just don't have it in Scripture. Before you panic over that, that happens a lot of other times too. In the book of Jude, uh, Jude tells us about Enoch and the judgment of God, but we don't have that in the Old Testament. Maybe a more, a more clear example to you is when Paul in, in the book of Acts says, it's just like Jesus said, it's better to, to give than to receive. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? 
But look at the Gospels. There's no place where it says that. And Jesus, you know, but could Jesus have said that? Of course he did. And I think the fact that Luke wrote the book of Acts, he also wrote the book of Luke, probably got most of his information from Jesus' mother Mary. I think it was probably just a well-known fact that that's something Jesus said. It just wasn't written in any of the other books. But Luke records it in the book of Acts. It's not a big deal. So basically, four prophecies from the Old Testament or, or prophecies that were fulfilled. Number one, born in Bethlehem, as Micah said. Number two, he was going to go to Egypt, as Hosea said. Number three, there's going to be this great slaughter that's going to devastate the people of Israel, just as Jeremiah told Israel as well. Then the fourth one is that he would end up going to Nazareth. Nazareth was about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. So if he really was in Alexandria and started, they started heading that way, by the time they're done, this trip is like 250 miles long. That's a long way. That's walking from here to Winona Lake, Indiana. That's tough. That's a tough walk. Don't do it. So they went to Nazareth in the area of the region, the district of Galilee. And that was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was hated by the Jews. It was a rough and tough territory. And remember, Nathaniel says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? The city was contemptible, despised, hated. But here's God raising up his son from there. And God's protection over him through this whole uh, time frame and the attention that God pays to the prophetic details, it all just emphasizes the purpose and the person of who Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is Lord. He is God. He is the Holy One sent from God. And you can trust him with your life and with your eternity. Have you done that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the, the assurances that we have historically from your word, but also from other sources as well that just demonstrate your providential care for your son, Jesus, because he is the Messiah and because he is our Lord and he is the Savior from our sins. And you protected him in so many ways so that he would fulfill his purpose. And that purpose is to pay for the price of sin, sin that each one of us in this room have committed, but clearly placed upon the shoulders of our Lord Jesus when he went to the cross and died. And that wasn't the end because he came forth with victory and life and resurrected life so that we know that our sins are paid and that we have the purchase of eternal life in heaven. Thank you so much for those promises. Thank you for touching each one of us individually. Those of us here who know you as Savior each have a story we can tell. And it's a grand and wonderful story. And it's one that the angels rejoice and dance about. Lord, we're so grateful for that. And I pray for those, maybe there's some here that don't know you as Savior. And I just pray that today this would be issued. They can't officially do it later and keep postponing. They need to deal with it today. None of us know what tomorrow brings. So 
But for you, Lord, you love us, you bought us, you call us, and you welcome us into your holy presence. Thank you for your grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.